Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, where Paul read for us just a little earlier. A lot of the study was changed yesterday before the wedding, and uh, I got sidetracked on on one point, and the deeper I followed the sidetrack, the deeper it went. I began seeing things I never saw before. And uh, so it's changed quite a bit from when I first wrote my earlier notes down earlier this week. So let's turn to Matthew 16. This is following Peter's um, commendation from the Lord that he was indeed, when he asked, who do men say that I am? It was Peter that says, you're the Christ. Uh, You're the son of the living God. And he says, well said, Simon, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter's, Peter's on a roll. He's feeling pretty good about himself. And now we pick it up in verse 21. And the Lord begins to lay out to his disciples what is about to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. From that time, verse 21, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and then be raised again the third day. And Peter couldn't believe what he was hearing. Peter took him aside and began (laughs) to rebuke Jesus. I just, in my mind's eye, I can just see uh, Peter thinking to himself, not while I'm around, Lord. And it's a far free from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. Not while I'm here. I'm, I'm your man. Remember, you just called me Rocky. And um, this isn't going to happen. But he turned and said to him, get behind me, Satan. Now, this is a very harsh rebuke. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And this is where I drew pretty much the title for the morning's message. There's God's way. And then there's man who leans on his own understanding. And this is what Peter is doing here. It went right over his head. I mean, all the way up to the time they're going to Jerusalem, they're arguing about who's going to sit on what side of the Lord when the Lord establishes his kingdom. Here, he clearly told them way ahead of time that, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be beaten and killed. And then I'm going to rise again from the dead. Right over Peter's head didn't hear a word of it. All he, all he heard was killed. And Peter's thinking, and I, I think uh, Simon Peter was a big man and a man's man. But the Lord openly rebuked him and says, you don't have a clue of the ways of God. You only understand your own thoughts, your own strength, and your own ways. And he rebuked them that you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So I've called this this morning God's way versus man's way. Man's way versus God's ways could best be summed up by not only what I just read here, but by the disciples' question um, to Jesus in um, John chapter 6. So let's make our way over there. And I'm going to make my way up to their question by doing a little background Well, let let me answer the question first and then come back to it. It's in verse 28. The disciples wanted to know, what can we do, verse 28, what shall we do that we can do the works of God? How How do we make it to heaven? 
What can we do, Lord, for you? And the Lord's answer to that, that that is man's way, works. Much of religion is based upon your works. But Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Now, we're, this is going to be the center verse for our Bible study, but we're going to get um, uh, tying it into Wednesday night study. And um, uh, again, I've, I've learned some things this week that I've never seen before. So let's just back up to John 6, verse 15. For those of you who are either watching live stream or are here on Wednesday night, we talked about the feeding of first the 5,000, 5,000 men, the number of women and children, so we estimate about 15,000. And then a couple days later, 4,000 men more, and then it says women and children, so then I get another 12,000. And um, then we had Jesus leaving because of the multitudes and going away and coming, it says on Wednesday we learned it was in um, the fourth watch of the night, which it would have been about four, three o'clock, between three o'clock and sunrise, that Jesus comes walking on the water. One of the points we made is it's absolutely necessary to have all four Gospels because you won't get in a good entire picture unless you have all the Gospels together, such is the case here. If you look at verse 15, therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to take him by force to make him king, we talked about that, um, because he was feeding the multitudes. I mean, what, what, what kind of a better king do we have than that than to take a couple loaves and fishes and feed 15,000 people? That's, that's king quality. He departed again by a mountain to be alone. And when the evening came, his disciples went to the sea. We read that in, in uh, Matthew got into the boat and went over to the sea towards Capernaum, and it was now dark. Uh, Matthew gives us a time, John doesn't, and he had come to them. Then the sea rose, became a great wind blowing, so when they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus, that's not in Matthew's gospel, walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. Now what's left out here, but is added in Matthew, is at this point that Peter says, Lord, if it's you, then bid me to come. He says, go for it, Peter. And Peter gets out, and he begins to walk on water. Until he saw the storm going on around him, took his eyes off the Lord on the storm, sunk like a rock. And the Lord just picked him right up and got him in the boat and says, Pete, what's the problem? Why did you doubt? You were doing so good. And uh, that is omitted here from John. But he said, um, do not be afraid. And they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. That's not mentioned in Matthew. What's mentioned in Matthew is that the storm came to an end. What's mentioned here is that when he got into the boat, the boat was miraculously moved, raptured, if you will, (laughs) to where they were going. And so uh, one of the things as we study God's word, we study the Gospels, is the harmony of the Gospels have to be read in, in like manner. Now, on the following day, and this is also omitted from Matthew's Gospel, we read in verse 22, not explained to us in Matthew, why the crowds were really following him. So on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which the disciples had entered. 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. His disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and they came to Capernaum. Now, Tiberias is right about in the middle of the Sea of Galilee on the east side. Capernaum, if you're looking at Lake Winnebago, would be Appleton or Nina Menashe. Right at the very tip of the Sea of Galilee, you would have Capernaum. And they were seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea and said to him, Rabbi, where did you come from? In other words, where did you go? We've been looking for you. Jesus, knowing every man's heart, he knows the thoughts and the intent of my heart. He knows the thoughts and the intent of your heart. Knows the thoughts and the intent of their heart. And he busts them. And he says to them, Most assuredly I say to me, you seek me not because of the signs that I did, um, not, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So their motive was completely wrong. They had this great meal, they were full, and uh, he calls them on the carpet. And he says, you guys are following me, you're missing the forest for the trees, you're here. The sign was for a purpose. Now he's going to explain what he was really doing in John about bread, manna, and true bread, and truly being satisfied. So here he calls them out. He says, you guys, you're missing it. It's not about the meal that you got that was for free. It's about the person who provided the meal for you. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has sent his seal on him. And then we read the verse that that answers the question, what what must you do to go to heaven? The answer is, it's only one thing you can do. There's no work you can do. The only work you can do is believe in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And um, and after that, we find that man's way was looking just to have his bodily appetites taken care of, worldly things. But the Lord is saying that's not what it's all about. I did the sign so you could say, who in the world is this that can do these mighty works? And that he was actually sent from the Father. Now... What John is going to do is give us um, a God's way of what he was trying to get across to these the multitudes that were following him. So now let's pick it up in verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And they said, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. All right, every time I say that, take a mental thing in your mind, and let it become a custom. Every time I read those words, for when it was written, you have a Bible prophecy being fulfilled. And here um, is one of those places. The Bible is a book of prophecy. And here he gave them bread to eat from Exodus, and we'll go back to that. 
Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the true bread from heaven. In other words, he's now making comparison between the manna that came down in the Old Testament and himself. For the bread of heaven, the bread of God, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, bread is the sustenance that that um, the wheat that was the, the staple in Haiti, it's rice and beans, but in most of the world today, in those times, it was basically bread. And then they said, Lord, give us this bread. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never hunger, but he who believes in me shall never thirst. We go on and read in verse 48, 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, he's going to have everlasting life. I am the bread of life. You ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which came down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give him is my flesh, which I gave for the life of the world. Let's go back to Matthew for a second before we go on here. And I want to read a little bit farther down about counting the cost of being a Christian. A lot of people would have you believe, give your life to Jesus, and you have God's got a wonderful plan in store for you. (laughs) And I look at Jesus talking to his disciples. This is God's wonderful plan for his son. Go to Jerusalem, be killed, be rejected by everybody, be put to death, and then rise again the third day. That's what it's all about. And then he says to associate with him instead of uh, the misunderstanding of what can I get it out of it for me? That guy made a lot of bread for free yesterday. Let's go find him. Instead, the Lord said, if anyone comes after me, no, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then this quote here. This is so important. I hope you have it underlined. For what is a man prophet if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul on what will a man give in exchange for his soul you know that you're made up of body spirit and soul there's three parts to you this little part here is not me this isn't me this isn't me Um, my spirit is part of me connected to a soul and they're both eternal. And uh, the, my soul and spirit, because I believe in Jesus Christ, is going to live forever and ever with him. Good place for it, amen. And for those of you who have done the same. But here, this because of the, the culture and the society in which we live, I'm going to have you turn to Luke chapter 12. And I warned you ahead of time, a lot of page turning this morning, but... It connects, trust me. Um, Luke 12, verse 13, parable of the rich fool. 
Verse 13, then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to me, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he said to him, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. It's the whole thing. The one who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> it doesn't win. The one who dies with the most toys still dies. This guy had a lot of them. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself, saying, well, What shall I do, since I have no more room to store my crops? He said, I'll do this. I'm going to pull down my barns and build greater ones. And then I will store up my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, he knows he has one soul. You have many goods laid up for many years. Kick back, take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? All that you've worked for, all that you've done, and now you're going to die tonight and you don't know it, then what? You're going to take it with you? can't take anything with you. He was looking as if this was going to satisfy his soul. Wealth and fame and money can never satisfy your soul. Can I say that again? Wealth and fame and money can never satisfy your soul. Ask Kate Spade, ask, if you could, Anthony Bourdain. Just within the last two weeks, who is Kate Spade? Well, she created iconic, accessible handbag line that bridged Main Street in high-end fashion. She hung herself in an apartment Tuesday at her Manhattan apartment, according to New York Police Department sources. In 1999, she and her husband, Andy Spade, sold 56% of the brand um, to Neiman Marcus for $33.6 million. Liz, K- Liz uh, Claiborne acquired the company in 27, and Spade, Spade left her namesake brand. The luxury fashion company coached announced plans in May to buy Kate Spade for $2.4 billion. She was a billionaire. She was the name that everybody knew. Every girl here knows her brands of of purse from low end to high end. And yet, it wasn't enough. There was something lacking. My wife was shocked with this one this morning because she knew about Kate Spade, but she didn't know about Anthony Bourdain. Who is he? In an extraordinary sadness, we this is CNN, we confirmed the death of our friend and colleague, Anthony Bourdain, CNN said in a statement, his, glo- his love of great adventure, new friends, fine food and drink, and the remarkable stories of the world made him a, a unique storyteller. His talent never ceased to amaze us, and we miss him very much. Our thoughts and prayers are with his daughter and family at this incredibly difficult time. Everybody loved him, 61 years old. Um, had this very unique um, TV series. And having it all, I remember Chuck Gerard telling me a story before. Um, I'll give you a little history of the Jesus movement. Uh, 
Love Song was the first Christian contemporary album, next to Larry Norman and a couple, a couple of you old-timers will remember this. But before Chuck became a Christian, he was pretty well known in a, in a secular group called the Handels. And I uh, used to hang out with uh, the Hollywood elite. And he was telling me this one story over lunch one day. He said um, Frank Sinatra was having a party. And because he was part of the Hondells, he got to go along. And everybody's socializing and so on and so forth. And he walks into his room, and here's Frank Sinatra. He's standing against the wall, just hitting his head against the wall like this. And he's mumbling to himself, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. This is Frank Sinatra. Okay, so if you're under 30, you don't have a clue what I just said, right? <laughs> but everybody over goes, well, yeah, Frank Sinatra. This is who danced. Nancy Reagan wanted to be at the, at the White House, you know, Mr. Golden Voice. But in an honest moment, he was telling the truth, being Frank Sinatra, one of the smoothest voices ever. Say, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. Because things and possessions will never, ever satisfy the soul. Jesus said, if you want to be full and you want to be satisfied, it's not the bread that you eat. It's not what you have. But it's me, having me live inside of you, will bring a contentment and a peace that passes understanding and a satisfaction of the soul that simply cannot be put into human words. And when you've tasted of the real thing, you really have less and less concern about these other things because you see them as sort of a a distraction more than anything else. John 6, verse 32, said Jesus is the true bread. Now, this is where my Bible study got a little sidetracked because I got sidetracked on the manna part of it. And again, with every New Testament teaching, we do have an Old Testament picture. I want to follow through and have you turn back to the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 16, where we read a little bit about the manna. Exodus 16, picking it up in verse 14. I'm going to read quite a bit here so that um, you get a a feel for what they said in John, our fathers, um, Moses gave us bread from heaven. Okay, of course, they've left Egypt. They're on the road. And in verse 14, we find that the way God provided was giving bread from heaven. In verse 14, it says, And when the layer of dew lifted, There on the surface of the wilderness was a small, round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said, what is it? That's what manna means, by the way. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. And this is the thing which the Lord has commanded Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons. Let each man take for those for his tent. And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. Some people like to eat more, some people like to eat less. And so when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. No leftovers. Notwithstanding, there's always somebody 
that they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until the next day. They said, I'm not getting up early tomorrow. I'm going to sleep in, and I'll just eat some leftovers. But it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. He said, I told you, you're going to do this on a daily basis. No leftovers. Except, so they gathered every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much, two omers for each one, and the rulers of the congregations came and told Moses. And then he said to them, this is what the Lord said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy day to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourself all that remains to keep until morning. So they laid up till morning as Moses commanded, and it didn't. Stink. In other words, they gathered enough for two days, but on this day a miracle took place. It was just as fresh as the day before because God performed a miracle and he allowed them to have so they would not have to work on the Sabbath day. Nor were there any worms in it. And Moses said, eat that today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the fields. So even if you go out, it's not going to be there. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened, people being people, that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And Moses said, and the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white cordon seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Now we have a description of what it looked like and actually what it tasted like. Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to keep it for your generations. Now he's telling them to take a pot of this stuff and fill it up, and I'm going to show you what's going to happen in that one just a bit. And we're going to keep this pot, and it's going to last for generation, from generation to generation. That they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now the man is going to come to an end as soon as they get to the promised land. Their whole walk in the wilderness, 40 years. But the day they entered the promised land, the manna ceased, because now they were where God got them. Now here's one of my points that I want you to begin to think about here. God decided that he was going to feed them for 40 years. It was manna. And it was manna in the morning, manna at noontime, and manna at supper time. <laughs> and, but it was what God provided for them. Bread from heaven to sustain them, to get from where they were un, in bondage in Egypt right into the place that God was taking them. And this is where the picture for us um, begins to take place. Here we read that Jesus said that he is the true bread that came down from heaven. It had to be eaten daily. Let's have a first application here. You know what we're having right now? We're having breakfast. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And we find that we're having a meal right now. But it had to be eaten daily. In other words, today's Bible study 
can't replace Monday morning's breakfast, spiritually speaking. Can I get an amen, and do you see the picture? This is something that um, is foundational as Christians. Where are your priorities? We don't think twice about eating three squares a day. We can't wait. We're already planning what we're having for lunch. For those of you who are doing that right now, get your mind back in the Bible study. You can have your brat later. And yet, um, this is the first thing that you want to see. And morning devotions, I call it quiet time. I always read wisdom from the, for today. I sort of like just looking out my window and talking to the Lord. Sometimes I play worship songs like we sang this morning on my 12-string guitar. I got a six-string and I got a nylon string too. And uh, sometimes we just sing. Not always. But um, that should be a discipline as we go through the Bible that we see. Here's the picture. And it's something that, as we see here, it's got to be done daily. And what we get on Sunday this morning isn't going to sustain you tomorrow. You have to um, have your own devotional life. It's, it should be a priority. Dads, I'm speaking to you foremost right now because your wife is watching you. Your kids are watching you. And what are you going to do first thing in the morning? Grab your cup of coffee and run out the door and go about your business? No, if they see you taking the time to spend time with the Lord. Uh, I used to say about Pastor Chuck, it wasn't so much what he taught, but it's what we caught. We just watched the band. And um, it's what we picked up uh, that was so real about, about Pastor Chuck. I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and uh, draw your attention to verse 3. Matthew 4, I want to show you the prophecy. In Deuteronomy 8, it says, So he humbled you, allowed you to be hungry, and he fed you manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but let man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now we have a direct connection that this bread is actually equivalent, symbolically speaking, and it fulfills Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, where Jesus said, it is written. Well, where is it written? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God. So what is manna? Well, manna is the word of God, symbolically speaking. But we don't understand that until we see the fulfillment of it in the New Testament. Okay, well, this is where I learned something new. Remember, I sort of read over the part. Here, take some of it, put it in a pot for generation, generation. That was right over my head, just like the Lord speaking to Peter, and I wasn't listening. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Want to hear those pages turning? I'll give you time to get there. Book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Paul had to explain to the Jewish people this new covenant. And in doing so, he has to go through um, tradition. Um, He's going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, what was in it. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of uh, chapter 9. 
Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. The, the wilderness tabernacle. It was portable. When the spirit of the Lord would move, the children of Israel moved. When the spirit of the Lord stopped, that's where they set up camp. And it was the first tabernacle. It had a holy place, and then it had a curtain, and then it had the holy of holies, which would, would have been where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. Verse 2. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table shed, uh, um, table stand, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holy of all, which had the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna. What? I thought just the Ten Commandments were in there. No. There was this pot that had gone from generation to generation to generation, and Aaron's rod that budded. The Ark of the Covenant contained three things. The commandments. A pot of manna. Um, It wasn't there when... Uh, during the time when David was was bringing it back. I don't know if people wanted to see what manna tasted like and somebody ate it, we don't know. But over time, it it wasn't uh, in, in there. Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory and overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we can now speak in detail. What's your point, Dwight? Well, the word of God is to be eaten daily. Oh, he can have it take place where a miracle um, happens and you can do it for two days. But then he says, set a pot of this aside and it's going to last from generation to generation to generation. And now Paul, who I believe is a writer of Hebrews, is actually making reference to it. What's your point? Jesus said heaven and earth is going to pass away. But the word of God is going to last forever and ever and ever. Just like the pot of manna. It's a picture. God says that he holds his word, this book, above his own name. And what is the manna? It's the word of God. And that if you eat of it, and eat of of the Lord and his word, he says you'll never be hungry and uh, you'll find satisfaction for your soul. And I'll have to admit to you, I'd never, I'd forgotten that the, uh, the pot of manna was actually placed in the Ark of the Covenant from generation to generation to generation. All right, so imagine you're eating <laughs> um, the same meal every day for 40 years. And what began to happen We need to turn back to the book of Numbers. Remember, I told you I was going to make you turn this morning. You need to go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. And every morning, it's the same old, same old. You get up, you go outside, gather your manna. You could boil it, broil it, chop it, whatever. And we find that after a certain period of time, let's pick it up in verse 1, now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. 
So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So the name of the place in the tabernacle, uh, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. God got upset because they were complaining about his provision. His provision was manna. And they, they simply, in verse 4, it says there was a mixed multitude among them. What's a mixed multitude? That means when they came out of Egypt, there were those that really um, saw Moses as God's man and God's leader. And then there were guys like Korah who said, Moses, who do you think you are? God speaks to us too. And there was mixed multitudes. And um, that yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? Oh, we remember when we were in Egypt, the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, spicy stuff. But now our whole being is dried up and there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. They were sick of manna. They wanted things spiced up. They had made manna every way possible. They had manna bread. They had manna burgers. They had manicotti. Man, they had a lot of manna. And they were sick of manna. They wanted the garlic. They wanted the onions. Hey, can't we spice things up here a little bit? This is where the picture comes in and the main application of what's happening today in the church. What God has given us to sustain us in our Christian life, from point A to point B, is this book. And unfortunately what's happened, and so that you can see this, you need to turn to Second Timothy, back to the New Testament, Give you time to get there, Second Timothy chapter 3 and 4. Application to the church in the last days. It's been 2,000 years. Church has gone through some good times and bad times. For the first 300 years, there was a lot of persecution. But they maintained an integrity that was there, even though false doctrine was even then beginning to enter in. But in the last days, we read in verse chapter 3, verse 1, in the last days, again, we're living in the last days. How do I know? Jesus says the generation that sees Israel become a nation will be the last generation. How long is a generation? I don't know. That's why Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour of the rapture. It's timeless. And all we know that Israel is a signpost. This is their 70th anniversary from 1948. Now it's 2018, 70 years ago. But in the last days, it says, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, 
traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Oh, they have a form of godliness. What does that mean? It means they go to church. Having a form of godliness but deny its power from such people turn away. Turn away from what? If this is their lifestyle and this is what they're into and they're pursuing their own pursuits just like the men that were the multitude that was following Jesus for the wrong reasons. Well, you guys are here because you got fed food on the other side. Their motive was wrong. I want you to follow me because I am the bread of life and I'm the only one that can give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. From this sort of those who creep in households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lusts. I like this. Always learning. Always looking for the next degree. Climbing the corporate ladder. But never coming to the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? Nothing in this world will satisfy your soul. And then we go on to read in verse 13, Evil men and impostors will, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, church, here's you and this is for us. But as for you, as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from who you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known what? The Holy Scriptures. You know how many people today don't know the Holy Scriptures? You know how many churches today will open a Bible and read a verse and then ramble on motivational type speaking for the next hour and close it? And that's all the Bible study you get. That's the majority of the churches today. And I'm talking about ones that are supposed to be Bible-believing Christians, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. For all Scripture, even Ecclesiastes, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where we just were, is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine. People don't like doctrine anymore. They want to dumb down doctrine so that we can all be one great big happy family. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely, thoroughly equipped in every good work. Then Paul charges his young protege, Timothy. Paul is his mentor. And he's saying, listen up, Timothy. I charge you. Strong words. Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his coming? Preach the word. The word. The manna from heaven. The word of God. Be ready, in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Why? Because the time, not will come. Paul was writing this in about 66 AD, somewhere in there. The time has come, church, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers And they will turn away from the truth and turn aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. 
The attitude of the last day's church is goes something like this. You know, I was brought up, went to a church that yeah, the, the preacher taught the Bible every week, and, and it was a Bible-believing church. And um, it's gotten to the point in the last days where the attitude is, you know, can't we spice things up just a little bit? I mean, all he does is go up there, and he's in Matthew 16 one week, and he's in Matthew 17 the next week, and we know where he's going to be after that. And it's manna after this, and it's manna after that, and it's manna, 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 manna. Well, guess what, gang? This is what God has given the church to sustain you. Not to take on the attitude, well, we've been there, done that. No. Um, this will be our fourth time through the Bible. If the Lord should tarry, we make it through Revelation, then we're going back to Genesis once again. We're going to go through the whole thing again until the Lord comes and takes us home. Why? Because this is the bread that he, we're charged with a strong charge. Don't get caught up. Don't let society change the church. The church is supposed to be changing the society. Good place for an amen. Have not we failed? Overall speaking, who are the most influential churches in the country today? Well, the one that's making the news right now, because I just got their, their flyer for their summit, is the Global Leadership Summit, hosted this June 26th at Willow Creek. And I did a little research, because along with Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, Bill Hybel, because of some sexual failures, no longer uh, in the pulpit, uh, the senior pastor is now a female, and will, will be, anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian, and in their leadership conference coming up, uh, this June 26th, in the research that I did, this is where I got a little sidetracked. In the last days, it says they will um, heap up teachers uh, that, that really aren't even Christians. And you, th- you say, how can such a thing be? They have 14 keynote speakers. I can't pronounce most of their names, so... Um, I know for sure 10 out of the 14 have no personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and they're not there for that reason. They're either motivational speakers like Simon Sinke, a British uh, motivational author, marketing consultant. Um, We have Danny Mayer, famous New York City restaurateur. David Livermore, a social justice and diversity guru who heads up the Global Learning Center in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We have a gal from Africa uh, who's just a doctor speaking. We have Ramus Ankuras, author, motivational speaker to top athletes around the world. Um, An African name I can't pronounce, but he's an African businessman and founder of the Global Telecom Group. We have Carla Harris, Vice Chairman of Morgan Stanley Investments. We have Angelica Anhartz, Vice President of Retail of Apple, Inc. And here we have people. This has already been sold out. Willow Creek, 7,000 people. And for only $200, you can go to this conference and take your church leadership to people who don't even have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is the model for the church today. So when we read in the last days, 
They're going to gravitate away from um, and gravitate towards. Simple question. Either you see it happening or you don't. Has it had an influence? Oh, yeah. They're sold out. I did the math. $200 times 7000 is $1,400,000. But they have 600 satellite churches that is going to live stream this conference in. I don't know what the exact price is, somewhere between 50 and 100 bucks. And for 50 or 100 bucks, you can go to one. There's, good, there's one here in the valley that'll be live streaming it. And you can pay that much, and you can take your leadership team there, and you will learn leadership skills. Here's my problem. For the life of me, I can't see Jesus in any of it. Jesus being a motivational speaker, rebuking the people for following him for the wrong reasons. What are the reasons? Well, Peter Drucker is the main guy before it. He's the CEO of, of business for our country, has been for many, many years. Both Rick Warren and Bill Hybels mentor was Peter Drucker. A secular man says, you want a successful church? I'll tell you how you do it. Bill Heibel started 40 years ago. He went out and did a demographic study of his area of Chicago. And he asked people, what would you like to see in a church? How would you like to see church run? Well, we'd like to see this, 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 and this. And uh, they actually developed the church around that model. I could get really sidetracked here because they did an own demographic study. Um, what was it? Erwin McManus. He's an emerging guy. He'll be at this conference. And a uh, close friend of Heibel's. And after they did their demographic study, they decided they'd do a survey on the effect that it had on the church, only realizing that they poured millions and millions of dollars into trying to build people up as a Christian, only to find out they failed miserably because people weren't growing spiritually. Why weren't they growing spiritually? Because faith can come only by one way, my friends. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. It doesn't come by reading one verse and then learning how to be a motivational guy where I can walk around the stage really quick, which for the life of me, I can't see the Lord doing. They picked the the wisest um, business leaders in the world, but what does the Bible say? Has not God chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? Peter and John, a couple fishermen that healed the guy going into the temple, everybody knew about it. They said, these guys are unlearned fishermen. But they knew that they were hanging out with Jesus. You see, they were connected to the vine. And Jesus said, unless you're connected to the vine, and who did he say he was? I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the vine. And you are the branches. (laughs) And unless you're abiding in that vine, you can do nothing. Oh, it may appear to be successful all over the place outwardly. But spiritually speaking, my Bible says in the last days there's going to be a falling away. Not a revival. When you hear people say revival, not in the last days. Maybe in some of the uh, more remote places in the world. Well, Dwight, why are you picking on Rick Warren and Bill Hybels? Because if I don't tell you from here what's going on out there, then how are you to know? And I challenge you to be a Berean. I know I'm offending some people right now. 
So Pastor Dwight said, no, Pastor Dwight did not say. Pastor Dwight was teaching some Pastor chapter 16. He got sidetracked and he went back to Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. And he found that people were getting ah, another Bible study, more manna. Well, that's what God has given us to make it from point A out of the world until we get home. Good place for an amen. amen. It's rare. But you, you need to... Men, you need to be men. And you need to um, uh, call out and not be afraid to call out. Saying, why would you go to a church where they have a woman pastor? This isn't a great issue. And I'm not anti-women. I love my wife. I love, I love uh, all the sisters in the church. And there's a place for them for teaching and prophecy updates and so on and so forth. But my Bible's crystal clear when it comes to women in the pulpit. And it gives the reasons why. This is not a gray issue. And, um, and then the fact to bring in people who don't even know Jesus to tell me, a pastor, how I should be raising up leaders in the church. The Bible says lay hands suddenly on no man. You watch them. You see if they're spiritually mature. And you see if they got some spiritual meat on their bones. How well do they know the word of God? Do they have discernment? Are, there man, are they man enough to say no? If uh, my pastor is promoting Willow Creek and they're having a woman pastor and gay worship leaders, I have a problem with that. Because my Bible teaches otherwise. My Bible calls it an abomination. And so you can go to, they can go to the pastors and say, why are you doing this? And... They usually don't have an answer, but it's mostly because the numbers, the outward appearance of success. But I'll tell you this, you can um, have the outward success outwardly, but still have an emptiness inside that can only be filled from the bread that comes from heaven. And it's certainly not by people who don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So if Willow Creek is not the model, what is? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Go to Acts chapter 2. The early church. It hasn't changed. Oh, the world will change. But God's model for the church has never changed. Acts 2 verse 42. Peter's first message. Yeah, he blew it and Jesus rebuked him and said, Peter, you offend me. Because you want it man's way, not God's way. Well, then he got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And after he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, 41, then those who gladly received his words were baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. 3,000 new believers. And what did they do? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You know what that is? Bible study. What did they have for scripture? Only the Old Testament. That's what they taught from. The apostles' doctrine. Fellowship. Who do you hang with? We're not, it's not that you don't have friends that are non-believers. We all do. And I pray for my non-believing friends and neighbors and so on. So do you. But when you're, when you're associating, you should have your fellowship with like-minded people. Uh, in breaking of bread. This is, um, um, uh, I believe, communion. 
and remembering. There's only two things that the Lord asks us to do and has nothing to do with your salvation. One is communion and one after you've accepted Christ that you be baptized. Let me just do a little sidetrack here. It took me two years after I was saved to be baptized. Well, why didn't you get baptized? Because I didn't know. I wasn't plugged in. I wasn't growing. And I finally ended up in a church, a good church, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Peter Cashel. I was going down to Milwaukee to the Jesus people. And they were having baptisms every week. And they were explaining to me, yeah, Dwight, I was baptized when I was six months old. Been there, done that. No, 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 no. There's no such thing as baby baptism. You will not find it in the Bible. Babies don't have the know-it-all to know whether or not they want to follow Jesus or not. So only after you choose to be a believer now as an adult. Um, I've been walking with Jesus for two years. I don't think it's really necessary. No, not for your salvation, but being obedient to the Lord. We're having a baptism, July 15th. Some of you here have been walking with the Lord for years and you've never even been baptized. I have a simple question for you this morning. If you lead somebody to Jesus and they say, now what? (laughs) Well, you need to be baptized. Oh, were you baptized? Uh, And it gets uncomfortable awful quick. Why do we have a problem with it? Sometimes it's embarrassing when you're older. Maybe walking with the Lord for many years and you've never been baptized. Let me just ask you to do one thing. Ask your Lord about it. Should I be baptized if I've never been baptized? And I'll leave it at that. Pause for special effect. (laughs) The last one is, and in prayer. You have a prayer life with simply talking to the one you love. You know, you talk to your wife because you love her. She talks to you because she loves you and your kids and your family. How much more the one who's supposed to be the love of our life, the one that we're supposed to be um, seeking first, and the one that really satisfies your soul. As I close this thing up this morning, I have a closing question. Is your soul satisfied? The things of this world will never satisfy your soul. If you could ask Kate Spade, or if you could ask Anthony Bardone, everything the world has to offer, and yet they wanted to check out because they were empty. There was nothing there. They would tell you no. John, who would write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, makes it pretty clear. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Is that clear enough? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All these leaders are telling you how to make it at Willow Creek in the world. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is uh, it's not of the Father, but of the world. Satan has never changed his tactics. Eve looked at that apple, and it was one to make her wise. Lust of the eyes. Make her wise, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, good to eat. Why don't you take a bite? 
And in it, she did. Now here's the rationale. Why do all this? I'll be doing a funeral for John. I'm glad he's home. He's starting to suffer with his Parkinson's. And when I was talking to his wife, she said, I'm so, I got so many mixed emotions. I love my husband, but he was suffering. And she knows Jesus. And she says, I know he's home. I know he's home. And um, with that closing question, um, the world is passing away. First John 2.17. Here's the rationale. Why not love the world? Why not just give myself to the things? Why? Because it's passing away. And the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The small things you do, even giving a glass of water in Jesus' name, will be more beneficial to you 100 years from now than anything you're doing in the world today. And that makes perfect sense to me. This is common sense. The world's passing away. It only makes sense to invest in seeking those things that are eternal. The bread of life. What is the Lord given to us? Uh, just another Sunday morning Bible study. You gotta wake up tomorrow morning, Monday, and see if you're gonna have breakfast or not. I hope I've rattled some bones this morning, so to speak, challenged you, exhorted you, but in a good sense, not only what to do, but also what to look out for. No matter how outwardly successful it may appear, here's the last that I wanna leave you with. The Bible is a plumb line. You cannot compromise it with it anyway. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And if you find the church getting involved in things that are contrary to it, then you must leave it. Not because I said so. I think that God's word says so. So the one thing that I know will make your soul satisfied, last verse, the bread from heaven, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never hunger. If your soul is not satisfied this morning, I want you to know Jesus loves you so much that he gave it all. And he gave it all so that if you would eat of him, how do you eat of him? Well, this is his word. Uh, We're told that the fulfillment of the, I've given you manna because man cannot live by bread alone. And manna was bread. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Oh, he will satisfy your soul. Amen. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning as we make our way through um, uh, Matthew. Lord, we pray and we're grateful for truth and for your word. I pray, Lord, this morning that... um, um, Those of us that can honestly say, I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied, I've tried a lot of different things, but nothing like the pastor was talking about this morning, to really be satisfied. Lord, we are grateful for the peace and the assurity that we know we have eternal life. And we thank you that you're not a religion, you're not a motivational speaker, but you're the son of the living God and the temple, our, our body, Lord. We thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name, amen.